what's it really like having RP and not having your peripheral vision? And I said, well, it's a bit like a bit like the dog coming out of a vet with a bucket on its head. You know, you've got that um, you've got that tunnel vision in front of you, and you can't see to the side. Just before I interview today's guest, if you could please do me a favor at the end of the episode, jump onto the podcast app that you're listening to this on and rate, like, and subscribe to the podcast, whatever you have to do. It helps with the algorithm and that would be very much appreciated. Today's guest is, well, I think, and I'm completely biased, an amazing individual. He is my father. Now, my dad was diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa, RP for short, at the age of 57 and is now 70. My father talks about his journey of slowly losing his sight and the impact the diagnosis has had on his life. Ladies and gentlemen, episode 49, My Dad Milton. Welcome to One Moment, Please the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success and you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. Hello. Good evening, darling daughter. Thanks for coming on and talking about this. Oh, no trouble at all. It's actually quite, it's been quite an interesting journey. So uh, yeah, happy to talk about it. Oh really? How so? Uh, well, lifestyle changes, some funny episodes. Um, yeah. So, Just reflecting back on it all. Yeah, I think um, from first being diagnosed with um, RP or retinitis pigmentosa to, to where I am now, it's a, a, a much a much different mindset to where I was. Mm. Mm. I suppose I want to go through what was life like before your diagnosis and then how it changed. So. What was life like beforehand? <clears throat> life was pretty normal. I uh, I didn't know I had it. I didn't know that I was losing my uh, peripheral vision and uh, I, I just carried on work and life was normal. I was a general manager within a hotel group. My daily routine, supervision of staff, looking at many, many other people in different sites, doing reports, working on Excel spreadsheets, um, yeah, largely supervision and liaison. So, and I mean, you're pretty, you're pretty active. I mean, you're still active, but you're pretty active before the diagnosis. But how how did the diagnosis of RP come about? I was sitting in my office uh, working on my computer, and uh, I lost sight in my right eye for about two to three minutes. And um, at the end of that period, bit of a shock. I hopped in a taxi and went to the Epworth Hospital. After some exhaustive examination, they, they told me that I'd had either a small clot or a flake that had travelled along the uh, bloodstream and hit the optic nerve and it caused me to lose uh, my sight in that right eye. And how lucky I was that the uh, flake or the, or the small clot wasn't bigger and hadn't gone somewhere else or had caused total blindness in that eye. Um, they then referred me to an ophthalmologist, uh, eye specialist, or a follow-up, and it was at that examination that uh, he said to me, have you ever heard of retinitis pigmentosa? And I said, no, I haven't. He said, do you have trouble driving at night? I said, yes, I do. He said, are you uh, susceptible to bright light or glary light? I said, yes, I am. Um, he said, have you found that you're bumping into people or poles or things? And I said, well, you know, now that you mention that, yeah, it, I have been bumping into a few people lately, and uh, 
but I haven't been game to drive at night time for, for some time. And I just I just put it down to uh, eyesight was getting a bit more sensitive and uh, or, or um, you know, I just wasn't as receptive to, to nighttime conditions. So I just sort of put it down to ageing or whatever. But uh, not that I often needed to go out and drive at night anyway. So, uh, so the moment he said that and he told me that retinitis pigmentosa RP was the degenerative process where the retina dies from the outside, works its way in. So you lose your peripheral vision, top, bottom and sides. So uh, he said to me, you've probably been turning your head a lot more and not realising it to compensate. Yeah, so that was the diagnosis, which was, which was a surprise. And you sort of go through all this, oh, gee, what does that mean? Well, I remember you coming home and saying, when I came over, you were like, well, I've realised why I'm walking into people and walking into door frames and everything. I've got this thing called RP. And then you sort of explained what it was. And I was like, well, that makes sense. <laughs> and then I was like... Oh, do I have it or is it just that I've got big hips and I keep hitting door frames? <laughs> well, well, I haven't got the big hips, but uh, <laughs> I was making lots of new friends because I kept bumping into people and saying, oh, hi, sorry, my name's Milton, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. It, was, it had a plus, it had an upside. But uh, How did you deal with that? Because obviously at that appointment they probably – gave you worst-case scenario, which is blindness. And uh, with RP, you don't know sort of how fast the degeneration is going to happen or if it's going to pause and then that's it. So there's no real um, definitive diagnosis with RP. It can give you some limitations and then stop forever or it can stop and then keep progressing um, and you potentially can end up being completely blind. Um so how did you? They obviously explained that to you in the in the inter, um, in the interview, rather in the appointment. How did you deal with the diagnosis? Because that's a pretty confronting thing. Saying you're going blind, potentially. Well, potentially. Um, yeah. Look, I asked a lot of questions and I I read a lot, um, and I I discovered through my reading that RP was largely a disease that affected young people and yep. te teenagers. Yep. Um, and a lot of those dear people had, had become blind by the time they were in their 30s. Mm. Um, and a smaller percentage of people that have RP um, have late onset, which is my story, and uh, can still see, although limited vision, can still see well and truly after they're 80. So mm. at the age of I'd... 70 now, I'm, I'm hoping that that's, that's going to be my progression. But, you know, the, the, someone asked me the other day, what's it really like having RP and not having your peripheral vision? And I said, well, it's a bit like, a bit like the dog coming out of a vet with a bucket on its head. You know, you've got, that, um, you've got that tunnel vision in front of you and you can't see to the sides. So, mm. um, so that, that's... That's that's an analogy that or a description that probably paints a clear picture for some people. But um, yeah, you're you're looking forward, but you can't see to the sides. My question was more in regards to how did you cope with it mentally. I mean, you went through you went through the factual stuff in regards to I read a lot, but how did you emotionally deal with that diagnosis? Well, that was part of dealing with it emotionally to be well informed. 
um, or to be better informed. And, and I'm no health professional, um, but what I what I understand is that normal vision is about uh, if you're looking straight ahead, you should be able to see to the side of either side of your nose quite well to the point of you've got 180 degrees vision. So when I knew I didn't have that, and 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 especially after the uh, specialist said to me, I've, I've got a duty to report your situation to Vic Roads because you're still driving. That was the part that I had trouble dealing with because uh, it was imminent that I was going to have a loss of independence and, and, mm. and the freedom freedom of driving. So that, that took a bit of getting used to. But it wasn't until three years after diagnosis that I... I after having an annual test with Vic Road Specialist, uh, three years after my diagnosis in 2007, that uh, Vic Road said, hey, Milton, give us your licence, you shouldn't be driving. And I, look, I, I was happy with that. I was happy with that from the point of view I'd resigned myself to that fact. I, I mentally got ready for the fact that I was going to have to use public transport. And look, Fiona, the last thing I'd ever want to do is cause an accident or knock a child off a bike because I didn't see them coming out of a street on the left or the right. Mm. I remember uh, you saying at the time, Pop, so your father, um, the fact that he used to be a, a copper, um, helped you because there was a car accident. Do you remember this story? There was a car accident where the guy hit somebody, and I can't remember um, what happened to the other person in the car, but the guy turned to Dad and said, I shouldn't be driving here in my keys. And... Yeah, that that was that was an accident that he attended um, mm. of a, of an elderly person who probably no one knew at that particular accident that he that he had uh, any form of eye eye problems or what have you. But, but he probably knew he was in some some sort of frail degenerative situation, and uh, he was running the gauntlet by driving. And the first thing first thing he gave the police when they turned up to the scene, I mean, he was okay. He took his took his keys out of the ignition and said, mm. here, please take these. I don't mm. want to drive anymore. So whether that had an effect on my father later in life or not, I really don't know. But when my brother and I turned to Dad and said, look, your driving is getting bad, um, I think you've got to consider not driving anymore. He, he was a realist and said, yeah, okay, take your point. Well, I remember him. I remember you telling me that story in relation to taking him off the roads. But I, I mean, I also remember he was living up in the Gold Coast. For those that aren't in in Australia, it's the other other end of Australia. Um, and you telling me stories of how he'd go into the the um, mechanics and say, oh, "I've got this weird sound happening in in the car," and he was driving too close to the left hand side. And in Australia, on the on roads, we have um, on the left-hand side, the solid line is, um, is it cor- would you say corrugated? It's got rigid things on there that make a noise yeah. to let you know that you're it's veering a, it's off It's a the narrow road. band of white, white, white bumper, bumper strips, yep. Yeah, so it lets people know that they're going off the road. So he was driving along that, hearing this whirring, thinking that something was terribly wrong with his car, um, and he was just driving over that. And also his neighbours used to... Um, cringe when they're watching him back out of the driveway because they were convinced that they were going to take off a side mirror or, or side swipe his yeah, car. Yeah, I mean, he, he was driving. He was convinced he was driving in the centre of the lane. Yeah. Um, but in actual fact, he was driving extremely close to the left-hand side of the, 
to the road because um, he had tunnel vision. Yeah. And I didn't realise that was his problem. I didn't realise he had or he probably had. It was never, never actually confirmed. But when I got diagnosed, it was after my father died and uh, when I looked back at his, his eyesight problems and I was told it was a, a hereditary disease, I went, oh, yeah, now I fully understand. That's what Dad had. So, uh, but look, he was sitting up in bed at a nursing home doing crosswords and reading the paper at 85, 86. He would knock mm. the odd glass over on his side table and things like that, but... Uh, Lucky's quality of life was was quite good. It's been an interesting journey to see how you've dealt with it, uh, but also a an education process because I always at some point you realised that you needed to needed a cane, um, and that was an education because to, before I was always of the understanding very naively that people that use a cane are blind, completely no vision. And what I have come to realise is that it's mostly people that, I mean, certainly people that are blind do use them, but it's people that have low or are in vision impaired that also use them as well. And that's been an education process. And and the, and the services that, I mean, Guide Dogs Australia has been absolutely, I know Vision Australia is out there as well, but Guide Dogs particularly has been amazing to you well, in terms yeah, of education. Yeah, Guide Dogs Australia, they, they branch down to, I believe, different, different state bodies under yep. the one umbrella. But if I could just go back to Vic Roads a little bit, um, the regular eye tests I had with their specialists having an annual field test, I believe they they request your licence to be surrendered uh, when you get to about 110 or 100 degrees of vision. So you've gone from a normal 180 degree situation and you've deteriorated down to you've only got about 100 degrees. I'm not 100% sure that's correct, but I'm, no, I'm near the mark there. It was after the, they said, please give us your licence, that I then realised that I probably needed a bit of help and support. And I rang up God Dogs Victoria and they, they were terrific. They actually sent somebody around to my home and they did a quick sort of assessment themselves and read the, um, read the medical reports that I had and a lovely lady um, trained me on using a white cane. And she said, look, you're not ready for a guide dog yet. You're nowhere near, near blind enough. Um, yeah, look, they, they, they sent out a trainer to uh, train me in, in, in the correct way of using a white cane. It was sort of an, an hour, hour session over about six weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, we went on and off trams and trains, went into busy shopping centres, did some sessions in the park, up up and down concrete footpaths, over grass lawns and what have you until you get used to sort of all sorts of situations. Mm. Um, and then you realise how useful a white cane is, not only not only in informing you um, as to the nature of the footpath that you're walking on or the surface that you're walking on, but it also, it also lets other people know that this guy's vision impaired. Or if anyone else is using a white cane, this guy or this lady's vision impaired. So, yeah, yeah. I think at some stage, particularly when people are on the on their, you find it very frustrating when people are on their phones and they're not, not looking up, and also if people are walking behind you, they don't necessarily see it. So that's interesting. At one point, we sort of said maybe we should get you a high vis 
you know, like what the tradies wear, like a high-vis um, jacket and put a visually impaired sign on the, you know, sticker on the back of you or something to let, uh, let you know, yeah, let everyone know. A, a T-shirt screen printed on both sides. Yeah. I do wear a, um, uh, a little badge that says I have low vision. Yeah, but no one bloody well sees that, particularly from the back uh, anyway. No, they actually do. They, um, uh, yeah, because I don't always have my white cane out. So um, it's good to have that on, yeah. But mm. I, 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 like today, I walked up the street and I went into this local supermarket and the main street was busy and I would, I would never venture up there without the cane. Mm. Also, um, I think it helps because in the, there are times where in supermarkets you'd bump into a guy and he'd sort of almost, because if you swing around fast enough, you nearly take him out and they <laughs> They sort of square up to you until you until you have to say, "I'm vision impaired. <laughs> I didn't see you." <laughs> yeah, the white cane has a very calming influence when you bump into somebody. <laughs> I had a lady nearly take me out with a shopping trolley this morning, and uh, as she careered into my left buttock, I turned around and I had my white cane, and I said, "I am so sorry," and she said. The fault is totally mine. And I thought <laughs> if I had got the white cane, would I have got that perception? So, so there you go. But I, I think I, I think the interesting thing is that, um, uh, and I, I think that it's a, a general feeling across the population that when they see someone up the street with sunglasses and a, and a white cane, they think that they're blind. And I think that is quite quite. It's been my experience that that, yeah. that seems to be common rather yeah, you, than you, this person with a cane is visually impaired. Yeah. But um, you use that to your advantage, though, when you used to catch public transport all the time. You put on your dark glasses and people would assume that you're, you're blind and you couldn't see anything, so you'd sit there staring at them, <laughs> checking them out or looking over their shoulder what they're texting on their phone. <laughs> I don't know where you got that information from, Fiona. <laughs> I think your mother's been telling tales. Yeah. <laughs> oh goodness, the advantages of it. Um, what it. But yeah, look, I've I've spoken to quite a few people that I've met. They're also white cane cane yeah. users, and uh, they all have uh, different degrees of vision loss. Some have RP as well. Others have macular degeneration and other 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 conditions that cause that their sight to fail. Mm. Um, but you know, the majority of them are positive people, whether they've they've got a guide dog or whether they're just using a cane, um, you know, uh, retinitis, retinitis RP gives you tunnel vision and it gradually gets smaller and smaller. Mm, um, mm. The last person I spoke to with RP and I asked her what her aperture was or what, what her, what she was looking at, and she said my, my tunnel or my my little uh, area of vision's down to about a 10 cent piece. Mm. Uh, whereas I'm lucky, I've still, I've still is, got about 50% vision. Mm, I mean, you, yeah, yours is um, a lot better than what better than that. How did you, I mean, you had always envisaged sort of going out and having a tinny and going out in the water and fishing and, and so forth, which obviously you can't have a car license, you can't have a boat license either. So how did that change your perception of what retirement would look like for you? Oh, you just take up other pursuits. Um, yeah. 
you can't go in one direction, so you pick another one. So you, you adapt. You adapt. Yeah. So and it's no good, no good tripping over your chin and go, oh, why was me? I can't do this and I can't do that. There are so many things out there to do. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, I've taken up killer lawn bowls now. Well, I don't know about killer lawn bowls. I think you're talking about lawn bowls, which you are self-proclaimed. Um, Learning. Yeah, I've I was going to say good at, but I've, I was. <laughs> I've got a long way to go. <laughs> they won't have you in the pennant team at the moment, so you still have a long game to go. <laughs> a long way to go. Um, but even there, I have to be careful because you get a lot of guys on the on the rinks at the same time. So I find that uh, after, when I after I delivered a bowl, I have to s- take a couple of steps forward off the mat and then turn around and, and come back through my through my mates rather than just turning side on off the mat after I've delivered a bowl because quite often the next bowl was waiting for his turn and is standing very close. Yeah. So you look, you you adapt and it's fine. You just and and it's an ongoing process. As 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 the site deteriorates, you're you're adapting more and more and more. So there will get to a time when I will have to um, accept a guide dog and have another member of the family, which which will be nice. But at, at the moment, the white cane's sufficing, and uh, yeah, I've, I'm lucky. I've I've got between forty and fifty percent vision at the moment. Well, we don't. The thing is, we don't know whether or not that's gonna that, that's gonna happen. You could just have that level for the rest of your life. Well, I don't know. And yeah. and you were talking about the different different scenarios with RP and, and, and what have you. I, I I would have to talk to an eye specialist who, as far as RP is concerned, to to understand a little bit more. But I, I think you are right when you're saying that the cases vary and the rate of deterioration varies. Um, my forecast in looking forward is totally unknown. I yeah. mean, I've been I've been very fortunate in that um, the last three or four years I've plateaued, and my field mm. of, my field tests each year have shown that my vision hasn't changed. Whereas after I got diagnosed in 2007, for the next Five years, my eyesight deteriorated very rapidly. What? How do you broach the conversations with people that you meet? So, for example, you joining the bowls club, which is a fairly new thing for you. How do you broach those conversations with people that don't have any understanding of what RP is and what vision impairment means? Because you don't want to be completely um, written off in regards to your you're not able to do anything or join in anything or do you know that that has been a an issue in the past, as soon as you sort of mention it, people make assumptions that you're basically an invalid and you can't do anything. How have you broached those conversations over time? How have you changed what you well, – now what do you say to people to, to make it known that you still are um, functional? I know that's an awful word to use, but – Oh look, I, I, I just tell them that I don't have peripheral vision and I've, and I've got tunnel vision. Yeah, and that as far as bowls is concerned, you know, I can see perfectly well in front. Um, yeah, my vision's not affected in front, and um, and that's been proven by the fact that I am now able to hold my own with a social game of bowls. But I just pick up on the point that you were saying about um, um, people people with physical disabilities and what have you. 
you know, I've always been one to talk to people in wheelchairs or, or people with disabilities, and I think not enough uh, Australians do that. You you shouldn't you shouldn't see a person with a disability as a lesser person. You shouldn't see someone, uh, I believe, waiting for a train on a railway station, sitting in a wheelchair or or, or standing there um, using some sort of aid. Without saying hi, how you going? I think that. that well, I think that that's an interesting comment because I don't necessarily think that's an Aussie thing, right? Because if I think it's, I think it's indicative of the fact that people now are on their phones, and it's weird if you strike up a conversation randomly with a stranger on a plat- on a train platform. Right, that's more the generalised thing rather than that they happen to be in a wheelchair or an able body. I wouldn't go up to somebody which is able, you know, standing, going, "Hi, how are you doing?" Unless Can there I was a reason. Your day for it. Yeah, oh. yeah, but you're of a different generation, and I wouldn't like as a as a woman, I wouldn't do that anyway, no, unless stupid. it was unless it was prompted. So I do take exception to that comment. I, I think that there are examples for that. I certainly think that there's situations that would prompt it, and you wouldn't avoid it if it came up. But I wouldn't avoid it if with anybody if it came up. But yeah. I think that there's more. That's more of a statement in terms of now people are on their phones and they're disengaged with everybody around them. Yeah, uh, look, uh, uh, no, different, diff, different thoughts, different generations. But I, I yeah. just, I, I've always been a people person. I love talking to people, and I think probably since and and I, as I say, I always did talk to people who were who were, were, were handicapped and uh, I, I, I go back to being a a a, a a son of a mother who taught at a special school so I sort of grew up with special needs people around me um, but I do do think since I've had uh, the diagnosis of RP I've probably been even more outgoing as far as talking to people if I see them in a motorised scooter or Mm. Or a wheelchair, etc. Because they they they're entitled to have a good day too. Fair enough. Parting thoughts, Dad. Parting thoughts. What? Yeah. You wiping me off the podcast already? Yeah. <laughs> I think we covered everything. Um, no, I think if you if you see a person in a restaurant that asks for a wine glass and hasn't got a tall stem. Um, or you see someone that bumps into somebody in the street, just just have a second thought and think, hey, maybe this guy's got a, a, a has got a vision problem. Be a little bit more tolerant. Well, I think that I mean, oh goodness, the amount of waiters that you've taken because you like to talk with your hands, the amount of waiters that you've taken off out, and um, that's you know, I think that's I something. Think... That's something that was very early in my diagnosis. Yeah, and. Prior to COVID, I mean, you know, restaurateurs really crammed people in and you were sitting very close to other tables. You know, waiters and waitresses would weave in between the tables with, with trays full of drinks and, and or plates of food. And being, being one that talks in my hands, yes, I, I, I unfortunately upset a few drink trays uh, that were being carried. But... I've learnt, learnt not to sit on my hands, but I've, I've learnt to be less expressive with my hands. So uh, I we normally put you against a wall too. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I don't know about that. 
<laughs> someone said there must be an Italian in the family tree somewhere. Yeah, so, so they told me the house. Yeah. yeah. I but, mean, um, that'd be an interesting DNA test today. Yeah. Look, the um, interesting thing about family trees, look, the interesting thing is being told that, that retinitis uh, uh, is largely yeah. hereditary. Um, and uh, my two children have been, you and your brother have been checked for it. You haven't got it. Yeah. I contacted relatives overseas when, when I, I was told I had it to see if anyone down the family line had, had, had had tunnel vision or anything similar and it came back as a no. So how do you know? Well, I, think the, I think there's a caveat on that. We, My brother and I don't have any signs of it at the moment. We don't know because we don't – genetically there's no genetic – definitive genetic test i've inquired about it to to find out they don't know exactly which gene it sits on it can sit on multiple genes so they can't do a genetic test to see whether or not you've got it so you've just got to go in every year and get it get tested for it but i mean even doing that i had to um i go in and see a, a, a specialist clinic um and i was educating the specialist was very dismissive of me, you know, saying, well, if you haven't got signs of it now, you'll be fine. Um, and, you know, if you haven't got it by the time you're a teenager, and I had to sort of educate her on the fact that your case was late onset, you know, my grandfather's case was late, we, we assume, is, was late onset. So even the specialists are needing to be educated in some regards of the different types of RP because they can be very dismissive if if it's not a standard run-of-the-mill situation that they've come across um i, I think you got to be very careful when you say specialist alluding to the to eye specialist i, I think the yeah the person you probably spoke to was an optometrist spe- uh, spe- special it's a specialist a specialist optometrist optometrist yeah but not an ophthalmologist what are, what's the bloody difference oh an ophthalmologist is an eye specialist right an optometrist is is uh, um, a different degree. Well, I go into the clinic. I go into the clinic, and they've got it as a specialty area. So I see specialty people that are familiar with the disease. Well, that was. I would say that that comment coming from that particular medical person was. I find that unusual because they yeah. should be right across it. That's what I thought too. It's what I yeah, told they, them. They should be right across it. I said, you um, should be across this. <laughs> I did it. I thought it. Yeah, but look, it, it comes back to what you were saying before. Perhaps no two cases of RP are the same. Um, they might, mm. be, they might be weighted where there's a majority in a certain area, but uh, there are exceptions. Well, I just, you know, I'm glad that you've now in a position where I think after it's taken you a while, but I think that you've sort of got to a stage where you know more about your limitations and, and you've sort of got yourself in a retirement situation now where you're comfortable in the community where you've retired to. It's flat, which helps you out as well. You've discovered lawn bowls. So you've sort of had to reach out outside of your comfort zone as well to find things that, you know, you've piv- you've had to pivot from the, going out in the tinny fishing to being on a riverbank fishing and lawn bowls. You know, it's a different... Yeah, you, you adjust accordingly. But as you do walking up the street, I mean, you know, one walks a lot slower now and one turns a lot slower in crowded areas, um, you know, which is which is hard from someone that used to be a... Be a uh, in his younger years, used to be a rugby player. Um, 
So you 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 t- you tend to take things much more gingerly. And look, you have to be careful too because it's so easy to fall and trip over mm. things on the footpath or trip over uh, um, up upturned things. Uh, you know, pavers that have a lip protruding lip or uh, broken footpaths or rough road edges or what have you. I mean, you've just got to be alert all the time. But the the concern is, and that's the beauty of the cane, the concern is when you look down at where you're walking, you can't, because your loss of peripheral vision is up top as well. So, yep. you know, you walk into tree branches and things or you turn a corner and you're looking down at the ground and you walk straight into the, a light, light pole or a street sign. So Do you think that- painful encounters. Do you think that looking back on it over the years, even when I was a kid, whenever you were doing stuff, you used to always bump your head. You used to always have sores on your head from hitting light fixtures against a wall or something like that. Do you think you probably had it then and just didn't realise how bad it was? Or do you think you were I actually do. Yeah. It's interesting. And and two professionals have said, oh, your RP has been late onset. But I actually... In my heart of hearts, I think I had it much, much earlier. Just the progression was so slow. Um, and, you, and you're continually turning your head to compensate and you don't realise. Um, but I can, uh, yeah, you're quite right. You're quite right. Mm. I, can, I, I was always prone to sort of bumping. I mean, being a tall person doesn't help, but you, you, you tend to bump your head a lot more. But, um, yeah, I... I how do you know? Do you put a put a pin in the calendar and say, "Oh, this is the year and this is the date"? I think think it really happened or really, really started. No, but my body? I think it's interesting to look at it from a hindsight point of view. You know, when you sort of look back and go, "Well, was it really just being clumsy, or was it the start of RP that we didn't know about?" You know, like like pop driving. You know, we never knew that he had the issue. Yeah, but you're, you're talking about you know a man in his eighties then. Um, but in my situation, the, the sort of to be diagnosed at 57, um, who's to say I didn't didn't have it when I was 30? Who's to say I didn't have it when I was in my 20s? And it, the progression's just been so slow because it was the, 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 the effect the RP had on me has been different to, to lots and lots of other people. Mm. Thanks for coming on and sharing your story. Uh, an absolute pleasure any time and uh, congratulations on your podcast series. I think the... Uh, the people that you've been interviewing have been absolutely great to listen to. I think uh, one moment, please, has got a, got a greater heights to us to get to Fiona and I. For you to be congratulated, going really well. Thanks, Dad. I'll give you the money loader when no, we can, no, when necess- we're out of lockdown. We can see each other not again. Not necessary at all. Oh, <laughs> lockdown! Don't get me started on lockdown. Okay. I'm stopping the podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> That's a podcast topic. Bloody lockdown. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 